Welcome to Affect Autism. This week we have the pleasure of having a podcast with Dr. Greenspan's son, Jake Greenspan of the Floor Time Center, which is located in Bethesda, Maryland. And Jake's background is a teacher, and then he worked with his father for over 10 years. And I'm going to let Jake take this over from here because I don't want to get it wrong. So welcome, Jake, and introduce yourself to our listeners. Yes, thank you very much for having me. Um, yeah, so my, um, you know, my, my career in working with families and children did start kind of more in education. But even prior to that, I'd actually worked with my father and his colleagues, um, you know, doing different internships and research projects and things like that. But it was really when I got into teaching and teaching at a school that specialized in learning challenges that I started to see some of the um, challenges that were out there that children were experiencing, but also with the modalities of intervention and support that they were receiving. And that's actually when I started really learning a lot more about my father's work and how it was so different from some of the behavioral methodologies, which are really infused in almost every educational practice for kids with learning challenges or behavior challenges or developmental challenges, as well as most therapeutic practices. Um, So I kind of got more and more involved with him and his work. And uh, then he basically uh, started training me in his in his approach, the Greenspan floor time approach. Um, And so for the last 13 years, my colleague and friend Tim Bleeker and I, um, who are both kind of my father's protégés, if you will, um, I've been running the Floor Time Center out of Bethesda, Maryland. We have a couple locations, actually one in Santiago, Chile, and two in the D.C. metro area. Um, and we've been you know, really representing my father's work as purely as we possibly can. That's great. And um, for those listening, it's a clinic where you have, um, they can see you and they can see occupational therapists and speech therapists. Is that right? What, what kind of services yeah. do you offer? Yeah, we've, we've really tried to um, not actually become your traditional services clinic that just you know, offers speech and OT and floor time separately. Um, one of the things my father believed very strongly in, and the reason he kind of even asked me to start a clinic, um, was that he wanted there to be a, a, a clinic where floor time was the umbrella, right? Where floor time was everything. It wasn't just part of the approach or one part of the approach and that they were also offering sensory integration. They were also offering, you know, all these other different things that end up kind of getting confounded and, and, um, and not really fully integrated. But he wanted a, a clinic and suggested we start one that floor time is the umbrella and everything else fits into it. So we really see ourselves less as a services um, facility and more of a program where parents get floor time coaching, all of our staff, every session is done with floor time as the main um, base of techniques in addition to addressing the speech and OT or social goals that we have for the child. And we also have other offerings like social groups and vision therapy. And we try and encourage families to really buy into this kind of more integrated um, program because we find we get much better results, whether it's with us or at home or other professionals, that everybody buys into this same educational paradigm that children learn best when they get to do the thinking, when we're following their interests and we're gradually challenging them from the ground up, which, as you know, are some of the basics of Greenspan floor time. Right. And to add to what you said about um, the behavioral approach really being the default in almost every area of education and um, with children with learning challenges, it's not only that, it's also in parenting. Um, The culture of parenting is very behavioral. So, I I mean, I I go to the park with my son and, and I hear, you know, anytime I go, I hear... If you don't do this, then you're not getting this. Or, you know, if you don't do this, we're going home right now. And, (laughs) you know, that kind of behavioral approach is just so prevalent in our culture. And for some parents, they realize that, you know, I don't like playing these kind of little tricks or games with my child. I want a more respectful approach. And they look to floor time. And so um, I thought it'd be great to interview you about um, floor time, anytime, everywhere, because I've seen some YouTube videos that you've put up that talk about how 
even things like getting dressed in the morning. You can do things like putting your child's socks on their hands and sort of playing dumb and seeing what they do and building that into an interaction. And we can talk about that um, a little bit more in a minute, but I just wanted to go through a typical day that a parent um, of a child who has developmental challenges will go through and maybe um, hopefully get some good examples from you of how we can really incorporate floor time into the whole day to help our children to promote this thinking and relating and communicating. Absolutely. I think, I think you touched on it um, very importantly that, you know, I think there is a kind of a paradigm of thinking from a child rearing practices and dealing with behavior from doctors coming from educators and also being now infused very heavily into the household. And I don't necessarily put it on the parents as certainly anybody's fault, but it's kind of become part of our culture, especially in the U.S., that you know, what a child is doing is simply a behavior. It's not an expression of some, ter- some type of internal emotional state. Um, and unfortunately, as a result, we only address the behavior and not the emotional state. We end up with some negative repercussions, potentially long-term, and more and more research is showing that. Um, but that gets into kind of how we integrate it all day, every day, because in every moment, floor time, let's, I mean, let's actually first define floor time. Floor time is not just getting on the floor and playing what your child wants to play. That is one version of what can happen when using the floor time principles or Greenspan floor time principles. But what floor time really is, it's a set of techniques that my father developed to deepen and build relationships with caregivers that allows the child to learn to think and communicate in emotional ways at higher and higher levels. So if you take the broad definition of floor time, that is a thinking-based, communication-based um, experience with someone you trust and respect and are deepening the relationship with, then you see that this can be done at all times in any opportunity where there's a social interaction. And whether it is getting dressed in the morning or making a snack during daily routines, whether it's dealing with conflict and stress when the child is having a meltdown or a tantrum or acting out, or whether it's during the more traditionally viewed times of playing with you know, cars and dolls or jumping on the trampoline, all of these opportunities are moments where we can be encouraging a child to learn to communicate and think at higher levels. And it, we need to view it, every opportunity we have with a child as an opportunity to help them grow and develop. And that was my father's belief. It was these meaningful emotional interactions where we're communicating, not at, but communicating with a child that allows them to grow and develop. And more and more research every day is coming out showing that it's these meaningful interactions with caregivers and trusted um, and respected members of our community that allow us to build neurological wiring. And now they're actually finding it's these experiences that allow our brains to actually grow in size. um, Alan Shore, uh, who's a neurologist, just did a study about the size of the brain of two children, one who was receiving rich, meaningful emotional interactions and one who wasn't. And it was profound, the difference in the actual physical size of their brains. Wow, it it really is amazing, um, all of the neuroscience that's come to support all of these uh, sort of theories, really, that your father came up with so early, like even in the late 70s. And, and this neuroscience is now really showing that, indeed, what your father identified, that, that affect or that emotion being the key that drives the development and learning and, and can really help children who, for whatever biological reason, didn't form those pathways to relate and communicate or, or look at social cues the way the rest of us do that that through these interactions you can really start to form those pathways in the brain absolutely you know my if if you listen closely to a lot of my father's lectures which i've had the privilege of doing over and over and over and over (laughs) um you know you really pick up on some of the the things that he was discussing again early on back in the 70s like you said before this was kind of commonly held belief And one of the most important things that we now know that the brain is capable of and is able to do with the right experiences is that if a main pathway that is supposed to drive a certain behavior or thinking process is not available, like in many cases of children with developmental challenges, that main pathway connecting parts of the brain may not be fully developed. It may be blocked or may be hard to access for whatever reason. 
we can develop side roads. And not only do those side roads kind of help us get to where we're going, but the more we use those side roads, the broader they get. They soon turn into highways. And now we can actually access that same part of the brain for thinking and communication that might have been blocked or unavailable before by practicing it in certain ways. And the key ingredient my father believed to developing those pathways was an emotionally relevant experience where the child is doing the planning and thinking. And that is what floor time is. You know, developing and creating opportunities for emotion, more emotionally relevant experiences and allowing the child to do the thinking, not just feeding them some answer. And I think that's the key part is the child doing the planning and the thinking. And one of my favorite videos that I've seen of um, your father's is a video with a little girl who had severe challenges. I'm not sure if it was cerebral palsy. It, it might have been, um, but more... Um, more profound challenges with not just um, intellectual challenges, but she had movement challenges. And she was sort of sitting in, in the family home, um, off to the side, kind of looking at something, doing something in her own world. And your father really encouraged the parents to go towards her and try and get some kind of interaction. And maybe you remember better than I do. I don't remember how this glasses case got into it but for some reason this little girl loved this these glasses in the case and they made this whole fun game around this interaction of this glasses case and she just lit up and made her way crawling across the floor to find out where they hid the glasses case then it was on the dad's head then it was behind the chair and the thing that stuck with me so so much was your father saying imagine a million hours of that little girl sitting in the corner by herself playing because the parents didn't know what to do with her versus a million hours of that kind of rich, fun interaction. Imagine what that's doing to her brain development. Sure, absolutely. You know, that was a very famous video my father used to show a lot. And actually, while it looks like it's taking place in a, in a semi, uh, you know, disorganized family room, it was actually my father's office. Oh, okay. <laughs> Believe, it <or> <laughs> Believe it or not. But, but with, with that video, like you said, I mean, this little girl who is about three and a half, four years old with kind of global developmental delays and possibly some genetic differences, she was engaging originally around the kind of physical sensation of the object. She was tapping on her hand, watching it move, using it as more of a sensory object. And, that, and this actually gets directly into kind of the conversation I used to have my, with my father about what Greenspan floor time is and the types of activities. Because she was using it in a way to stimulate her nervous system. And she was finding ways to effectively self-stim with this that were actually somewhat isolating, as, as, as you mentioned. And she would have the... Um, she would have the propensity to sometimes get a little more self-involved and become a little more isolated in her own world. And so instead of taking the glasses case away from her and looking at it as some maladaptive use of a, of a tool, toy or object, uh, her, with the guidance of my father, her parents utilized the glasses case, which is not a toy, but turned it into one because it was an object of interest. Now to her, it wasn't really glasses case. It was something that had colors on it, something that moved, something that tapped her hand. So it was a perfectly fine thing to use if you think about it as simply a sensory object that was providing stimulation. And then they turned it into this wonderful treasure hunt, hide and seek game all around the room where she was using her motor system, visual system, auditory system, gesturing and signaling emotionally with her parents. And eventually, even processing higher levels of auditory information like instructions and even starting to make some more sounds, babbling and word approximations. So you see this amazing progression when we're able to follow her lead and then gradually challenge her to, to interact and communicate around that object with her parents. And that's what we call kind of now object-based play. So she's moved from a lower developmental stage of sensory play into the object-based play. Correct. And, and, and I don't want to necessarily say that just because a child is doing sensory play means that they're at kind of on that lower level, but it certainly has an indicator about their nervous system, right? So she was, she was able to utilize her body, her motor system, her sensory system to be more organized and purposely move through the space to manipulate different objects and search and scan and listen and look and do all of the integrated 
things that we need to do with our sensory cortex and our emotional system all at the same time for a truly integrated experience. And because she wasn't just needing to bounce, crash, and swing, which you can see some children really can't get out of those activities. They need it so much because their body is disorganized and their emotional system is disorganized. They have a harder time getting into some of these more object-based play scenarios. Right. Um, Okay, well, that brings me in a few different directions. I'm thinking of where to steer it towards. Um, so my son is very much a sensory seeker and we brought him to your clinic and you met him and he likes to move around so much and he, um, he was definitely doing mostly sensory play a few years ago and, and he's really now been in this object type play for a few years now, but it, it seems to get, he seems to like more and more elaborate kinds of things. So Um, he's very much into cause and effect. He wants to tap on things, knock them over, lots and lots of crashes, train crashes, and piling up all of his trains into a big pile. And would you call that object play? Absolutely. So if you're using an object, whether it be for, even if it is still for some, some level of sensory stimulus, if you're able to manipulate the object for social interaction, that is object based play. Um, and that means moving around the space, treasure hunts, hide and seek, you know, rolling things, your thing into someone else's thing. Um, even putting those objects on the swing slide or trampoline are still object-based activities around sensory stimulus. Um, the key though, the key with all of these activities, and this is the key to floor time or green spin floor time, as well as um, what is now being seen as one of the mandatory elements of child development as seen by Um, actually a very large university study at the University of Princeton, is that children have to be able to recognize and create socially interactive patterns and more and more complex ones as they grow. So it is with these objects in a social way that we have to learn to expand the pattern, right? We call this in Greenspan floor time, the continuous flow, really getting into more complex social problem solving, where you're expanding the number of interactive circles that a child is able to achieve with an object or with their body or with some sort of play scenario that allows them to have an elongated socially interactive pattern. And I think for so many kids, um, if they're playing with an object by themselves, those patterns don't get necessarily expanded on because no one's there to challenge them past that point of repetition or breakdown. Um, And I think also so many kids get stuck in familiar repetitive patterns because also, unfortunately, we as adults do too. (laughs) And and so whether it be sensory play or object-based play, the goal has to always be take it one step further, take it that extra step, always help the child expand by challenging them to do something new, another step, another two steps, another three steps. And this is where the challenge comes in for us parents because, you know, we have siblings who have kids, we have cousins who have kids, we see the other kids at school and we think, oh, those parents can just sit back and watch TV and their kids are playing up a storm and having such imagination. And here, our children, a lot of them have motor planning issues, so they don't necessarily know how to play or do something different. And it feels like so much work to have to go in there and figure out how do I challenge my child. So um, maybe I can start with an example and then we'll get into just some more examples of going through the day with a child. Sure. Okay, so I'll I'll start with an example. Um, Our son loves model trains. And so we go to see model trains all the time. We have model trains. And um, the latest thing he loves to do is you know model trains are not cheap <laughs> they're, they're, you know this this particular we have a few different scales but the one scale that i'm talking about is ho scale so they're they're um uh you know like can fit in his hand a little model train and it goes on the track and you know it it actually goes when you put the controller on so it has very intricate parts but his latest thing is he puts them all on the couch and then um he can't wait till we're there. And he says, what kind of this train is, mama? What kind of this train is, mama? And I say, oh, hmm, is that the, and I'll say the wrong train. I'll say, is that the Princess Elizabeth? And he'll say, no, City of Chester. What kind of this train is, mama? What kind of this train? And he holds up the next one. And it's the type of thing that 
he wants to do it over and over again, even though he knows what the name of all those trains are. I know what the name of all those trains are. And um, I'm trying to change it up by saying, but what, what do you, which one's your favorite one? What do you like about that train? Or saying, um, oh, look, this one has three wheels and, and that one has four wheels. I wonder why. Um, right. am, am I doing it right? <laughs> so, so, so you're not doing it wrong. What you're doing is, is, is right. However, what you're, I think, and again, certainly knowing, um, you know, knowing kind of what you're dealing with in terms of, you know, these, these activities, um, it's, it's a challenge. Sometimes actually what's inhibiting kind of the overall expansion of the activity is not that we're not taking it further. It's that some of the nonverbal planning um, and ideation kind of abilities still haven't fully solidified. Um, and I've seen a lot of kids who get stuck in these kind of repetitive social patterns, which is what I'm hearing you say, where he kind of has found something that really works to engage you, something he really likes, something he's able to create a social exchange that's meaningful with his mommy around, and it's this wonderful experience that he probably wants to have over and over, not just because of the trains, because if it was the trains, he'd do it by himself. It's about you and him. Mm -hmm. He's looking for that response from you, which is wonderful. But the challenge is he may not have a whole lot of tools at, under his, it, on his belt that he feels to access that social exchange with you. So what I often recommend to families, and this seems a little counterintuitive when, you, when we talk about floor time, is we don't want to just limit um, and make even available sometimes the exchanges around those trains. Right, So it's perfectly fine if we see a repetitive pattern emerging to work on expanding it, not necessarily to higher levels of language, but to new levels of physical challenges, whether it's harder to get the trains, whether the trains are driving somewhere else, even though he may not have initiated that part of the play. But we ourselves have to think of new ways to challenge if we want to think of him listening a new response. And that's the key because we ourselves get very caught up in the verbal part of the activity and we forget about the physical communication, which is where actually all of the pattern creation begins. And so if a child is having trouble taking patterns to another level, we have to go back and expand on not just their verbal ideation, but their physical and gestural communication and ideation. And that's where we get the most expansive interactions because now the trains, it's not just about listing their names and going through kind of this repetitive dialogue, but instead now the trains might be driving and two of them might be driving somewhere and two of them might be driving somewhere else or they might be deciding to go do something else. So if I'm taking, um, so in this group of trains that's on the couch, um, there's clusters. A few of them look the same, but they're different colors. And then uh, there's a few of the other kind of train, and they're different colors. So if I said, oh, um, these two trains are are going to the store, chugga, 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 and that kind of thing. And he says, no, mama. And he wants them right back um, sure. because they really try and protest. So what's the best way to navigate those kind of protests? So again, number one is we want to be cautious about how much time we're spending with trains in that way. Again, if he's, ex if he's expecting a very rigid and, and kind of familiar response from you, then we also have to be cautious of feeding into that because it becomes somewhat addictive, right, as, as you're kind of describing. But then the other piece is if you driving to the store is too much of a challenge, then just the idea of you driving to the store becomes the challenge. You say, oh boy, you know, and you, you put your hand gently on the train. You don't even move from the couch. You say, you know what? I want to drive. You know, I want to go somewhere new. We start there. And if he says, no, nowhere new, you say, oh man, but I'm bored. I don't know what to do. And you actually become the train, but you also are challenging him to respond to you. And you say, but I don't want to just sit here. I want to do something new. And now it's up to him to come up with the new idea, which is the ultimate goal. Your job is to challenge him to respond in new ways. You can do that by saying you're going to the store, but if he protests, you respect his protest. But then you get a little disappointed that you're bored. And now he's again challenged again. He's got to respond to your boredom. And then again, if he doesn't respond to your boredom, you say, okay, well, if you don't tell me where to go, I'm going to go somewhere new. And you go really slow and really soft 
And the second he says no, you say, oh, man, you stopped me again. <laughs> okay. And, and now, what is the new part of the pattern? Is the new part of the pattern you guys just listing the names and trying to find new ways of confusing him, which is, which is a really good thing to do at first but can become repetitive? Or is the new part of the pattern him protesting but hopefully in a more fun and playful way? So always making the interactions a little bit different and not getting into that repetitive um, mode. Absolutely. And, and a protest is fine. I actually love it when kids develop the ability to more assertively say no. But we don't want that big response of, sensit- of, of heightened sensitivity, right? Where you're saying the child is reacting, you know, a child is reacting in a more extreme way where they're really getting upset and bent out of shape. I've done this dozens of times with kids with markers and paper, with trains, with action figures, with cars, you name it, I've done it with this. The key is helping the child feel in control. Mm-hmm. So the goal is not to move the train, the goal is to get him to be flexible by coming up with new ideas and new steps. If he tells you why the trains have to stay there, that's new. If he tells you that the trains have to, you know, aren't allowed to go anywhere, ever, that's new even in itself, just their language and ideas, right? right? They have to all stay together. Oh, they have to stay together. Oh, they must all, you know, they must really like being together. And now we have a new part to the dialogue, right? That in and of itself is new, him protesting, him coming up with reasons, or eventually him expanding and ideally coming up with a new place to move them. And it could not be maybe the store, but it might be the chair next to the couch. Right, right. And, and all of a sudden he says, Go on the chair. You say, oh, great idea. And all of a sudden, he feels in control of where the trains get to go now instead of feeling like they're being taken from him, which is what so many kids feel. Right. And and as we've mentioned um, on the blog, and I've heard you mention, it, our kids do feel out of control so, so much of their day, especially if they're in public school in different places where they don't get to be in control and their sensory systems are... are um, you know, causing overload. And so anytime we can give them that sense of control, that's going to ease some of their anxiety as well. Absolutely. And, and when children are less anxious, one of the outcomes that this is one of our goals is more problem solving, right? It's when we're anxious, we tend to get more rigid and fixated on doing something one way that we feel we understand. It's when we're calm that we can be more creative and expand. So if you decrease the anxiety by helping him feel more in control, the next step is him coming up with a great new idea of where the trains get to go. And now we have that social problem-solving piece with some ideation. Great, great. So let's go through just some standard routines. We get up and we're getting dressed in the morning. Um, How can we make that more floor time-ish? Um, you know, you, you already mentioned kind of playing game with putting the clothes on different places. Um, you know, it just depends on each child. You know, I, for, for what you're describing with your son, I think that, you know, you, you would want to kind of be playful and put the clothes on the wrong place, put them on yourself, get him to ind- indicate, you know, which piece of clothing goes where. But also, you know, what you could even take that further and get out the wrong types of clothes. You know, you say, oh, I think, are we going to wear a bathing suit today? And, you know, there's a lot of kind of playing dumb, effectively, that we could use in those moments. Um, And again, the key is getting him to do new things. And sometimes it means us doing something silly or wrong. Um, And and again, again, I think there's many, many options there. And you may run out of options. But, uh, you know, if you run out of options, hopefully it's because he's becoming more communicative. And those moments have been used really well. Right. And then what, around, what about around eating, mealtime, snack time, things like that? Sure. So, so again, you want the child to be directing the pattern. You want them to create the pattern. So if it is them just doing a simple step of figuring out, you know, where, where to get the plate or the napkin from, and, you know, we pretend like we don't know where to put the sandwich, and he points to the table, you know, whatever it might be, the child gets to make the decisions as to how to plan out the process and that might require us playing dumb or doing it wrong um and again we could pretend we don't know you know where the milk is or the orange juice and the child is directing us to the fridge and say what are we going to put it in and now the child points to the cups but they actually point to a mug instead of a glass which is great because now they want to drink out of a coffee mug 
which maybe is what mommy or daddy's drinking out of because they're drinking their morning coffee. And you actually see the child wants to be part of the family in a more emotionally connected way. And I see this all the time when we open up the process for the child to make decisions. We see that their decisions are far more emotionally connected than we might anticipate. And it's a beautiful thing because kids, we can't always anticipate what they're thinking and feeling, but we can find out by letting them tell us or show us. And it's these moments that we really figure some of these things out. So what about if they just want their particular cup? And I remember talking to Dr. Tippy about this. He said, um, until they're abstract, they're not going to realize that uh, water is water, no matter if it's in the red cup, the blue pop, cup, the Paw Patrol cup, the SpongeBob cup, whatever it is. Um, how can we be playful around uh, maybe making them more flexible about what cup they drink out of even? Absolutely. So, so again, it depends on the level of intensity of the feelings, right? So the goal always is flexibility and which is a byproduct of creative problem solving, social problem solving. So the more ideas, the more solutions, the more steps we're able to achieve within any scenario, the more dynamic we can be, the more flexible we are, the more adaptable we are, right? That's the goal that you're leading towards. But adaptability isn't just learning that water is water. Adaptability is also understanding that, you know, the, the green cup is just as good as the red cup, even though the red cup still might be our favorite, right? And that I can have 10 different cups and they can each be favorites, you know, in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, but the key is turning each of these things into a little game. Now, again, if there is intense stress or, you know, uh, around food and eating and drinking, we probably are going to have a more um, tough time getting them to be flexible with a cup. You know, if, if we're just working on the content of what they're eating and drinking, we probably don't want to mess with what they're drinking and eating it out of. If eating is a, is a pretty easy process and they have a flexible diet, then sure, let's work on moving past the, um, the cup. We kind of want to make sure that we're picking the right battle. It's not that we don't want to pick battles because, you know, we do want to address each little thing in different ways, but we have to be setting the right goal at the right moment. And sometimes I find that, you know, we may be working towards a goal of flexibility in the wrong moment, right? We're doing it under a moment of stress and we're not doing it as much during moments of pleasure. So we have to start with working on flexibility during the fun stuff where a child is coming up with 10 different places for mommy to sit when she plays with him and mommy doesn't like that seat then he likes that seat then she doesn't like that seat now finally he's found a great place for mommy to sit during the play but he's now come with 10 different chairs for mommy to sit in that's flexibility right Mm -hmm. now if a child can do it under a pleasurable circumstance eventually they can do it under more stressful circumstance but we have to start with the pleasurable circumstances so that creativity is viewed as a fun process that dynamic problem solving is a fun and exciting process and then we can transfer it over to some of the more stressful experiences right so when it's really stressful get through how you need to get through but when um when you have the opportunity when your child's in a good mood this is when we really want to push that um the floor time where we're challenging them and being getting them to come up with new ideas and And that's where we're really putting in the effort into putting the challenges there for them. Absolutely. And and, and don't get me wrong. Again, let's go back to the water example. If, If the water is a more stressful moment, we may not be challenging with the cup at that moment, but we might still elongate the pattern, right? Expand the pattern, which is flexibility also, with the water. We pour it a little bit. We say, oh, is that enough? The child looks and says, no, more. Oh, here we go. Is that enough? No, 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 more. And he says, up to here, mommy. And now we have a new pattern around water. He gets what he's looking for. He gets the reinforcement. He has fun doing it. And now again, the discussion of water is not a challenging moment. It becomes a more fun game. Yeah, that's great. Um, And what about um, limit setting, which is such a struggle for so many parents? So, for instance, there are kids who 
for whatever reason, maybe it's because of motor planning challenges, they don't know what else to do. Maybe it's somehow emotionally comforting to eat, but they just want to eat all the time. And we have to, you know, set limits around, you know, we eat breakfast, lunch, dinner, and maybe a snack in between, but we can't eat 24 seven. So that's just one example of how we can set limits. Um, I know other kids, the parents would be thrilled if they eat any time of the day. <laughs> so, sure. um, whether it's eating or something else, how, how, um, what is the floor time way of setting limits? Well, you know, every child is different and needs actually different types of limits, right? So some children, and all children need limits. You know, one of the misinterpretations of my father's work is that we're just following the lead and letting kids do whatever they want. He actually has said many, many times, if you really read some of his books that talk about behavior and things of that nature, that all children need limits. And it's around 12 months of age that a child learns to perceive the differences in affective signaling, where a parent might, instead of be smiling, be frowning. That's the beginning of setting limits. If you look at a child and shake your head and frown, you're saying, no, you can't do that, or that's not a good thing, don't do that. And that is the beginning of the child processing that they are not allowed to do everything they want, right? That they are gonna get negative feedback at times. So part of it is being actually involved in the beginning with setting limits, right? Being involved in these meaningful interactions and setting limits within them, right? If a child is trying to throw a toy, we calm them down and we gently say, hey, we can't do that. You know, that's not okay. And we are very calm and gentle, but we're also firm. So that's actually one of the main principles my father felt around setting limits. And for people that need to create a, a metaphor for that, he would, would say, be the gentle giant, mm -hmm. right? Children are already scared of us. They were twice or three times or four times their size. We don't have to yell and grab them. As a matter of fact, all of the research shows that the more impulsive we are with our voices and actions, it tends to increase impulsivity in the childhood, in the child, as well as some some personality disorders later in life can come of it. Um, so the gentle giant is part of it, but also one of the other most important parts of setting limits, which again I find is rarely, rarely, rarely being done um, consistently by both parents, is that if a child is going to listen to someone, they have to have a relationship with them. Mm -hmm. And I find so often that a child is able to process limits from one parent and not the other, um, or vice, or, and, and, or neither, um, simply because some of the uh, interactions that need to take place for the child to feel grounded and supported by the parent are not there. And I'm not saying that's always the reason. There's plenty of reasons, but I'm saying that has to be our first step. You know, another an, another saying my father used to have that is so important is we have to give before we expect. Mm -hmm. Meaning, if you want a child to listen to you, you have to first start listening to them. If you want a child to respect you, you have to first show them that you respect them. Now, some parents just flat out disagree with this, and they believe in the iron fist um, you know, theory. Now, if that's the direction you want to go, please go in that direction. But again, more and more evidence shows that children need to feel supported, nurtured, and loved in order to benefit from boundaries and limits. And actually it's the children who are feeling less love, less nurturance, or less support who are often acting out the most. And I'm not saying they're not getting the love and the support, I'm saying they may not be perceiving it the same way that we think we're giving it to them. Mm -hmm. so, so I had a little boy who had a lot, he was diagnosed effectively with ODD, oppositional defiance disorder, and it was, and he and his dad were actually spending a lot of time together but they were spending a lot of time doing dad's stuff. They were going to the store together. They were, you know, dad was trying to teach him to hit a baseball, which are all wonderful things in a more traditional scenario. But this little boy was not, your, he was not um, developing in the more um, traditional ways. And so he needed a slightly more fine-tuned approach to feeling nurtured. And by dad shifting, his time with him to focusing on doing more of the things that his son liked and playing the son's games instead of doing the things that daddy liked, all of a sudden it improved their relationship and the boy started listening to him more. The boy wanted approval from his dad, so when he got disapproval, he listened. Right, and right. Now, and that's where it all comes from. Now, I will go a step further. It's not always that easy. Some kids you give and give and give, and they never 
give you back, right? They keep taking. <laughs> There's a lot of relationships in life like that. You know, you, you give it first, but then people don't reciprocate. So in those situations, we have to have very clear set and discussed boundaries and consequences at times. And some kids need a little bit more of a firm structure to their world, right? They may, may feel a little more disorganized and we're giving and giving and giving. And then we need to set a little bit more clear boundaries and even have discussions with them about these expectations. And I've done this with dozens of kids. The kids actually get to come up with some of their own consequences. They get to talk about what the house rules are, things of that nature. And we kind of go in that direction and it becomes this great objective conversation between the parents and the child about, you know, what rules are in the house? What happens if we break the rules? What are, what are the kids' rules? What are the mommy and daddy rules? One little boy actually told his dad, because his dad was, and he were butting heads and power struggling around homework, that, you know, we had this conversation and the little boy got to tell the dad what his rules were. And he told the dad, no yelling. If I'm not doing my homework, you're not allowed to yell. <laughs> yeah. and, and the dad agreed to it. And just like the little boy had a rule, he had to do his homework at a certain time. And if he didn't, he'd lose video game or TV privileges. The little boy said, and we said a consequence, and the dad was not allowed to go on date night with mom, the little boy said. <laughs> but, but, and, and I'm not going to say that this was flawless. It didn't work every time. But what it did is it put them on a mutually respectful social contract that they both bought into. And at times, the little boy lost his privilege and, and didn't want to follow through with his homework. And at times, the dad lost his cool and yelled like we all do sometimes. And that's the reality. You know, we're not, no one's going to be perfect. Kids aren't going to be perfect. And adults aren't going to be perfect. But we need to set standards for everybody and have kind of that, that mutual discourse around it in order to help understand what expectations really are. And what about when a child is younger, like even a toddler or at least developmentally still a toddler up to, say, seven or eight years old, where you can't really have those kinds of discussions? So, so this is something that we have to be making sure we're addressing the child's emotional age, not their chronological age, right? With a one-year-old who's crying, you don't punish them because they're not capable of fully understanding the punishment. And if you do, unfortunately, they now know that if you isolate a child or restrict your emotional feedback from a one-year-old, that it can have massive long-term repercussions. So just like we don't want to do that with a nine-month-old or a one-year-old, where we're effectively emotionally manipulating them uh, by ignoring them or shutting off our feedback, we don't want to do that with a four- or five-year-old who is having behavior problems. Because while every child may exhibit different behaviors, there's always a reason for those behaviors. And a lot of times it's because the child is seeking something out that they need or they're expressing something that they're internally experiencing. It could be pain, it could be distress from the world around them, it could be emotional frustration or anger, or loneliness or sadness. And if we ignore those things, or we just penalize those things, we're no longer encouraging emotional development. Now we're just trying to shut down the behavior. So we have to make sure we know where it's coming from. And most of the time what I find is by giving children what they need, while also cutting down on some of the challenges they're experiencing in stress, we see a, a, a significant change in the behaviors. And we do this with a lot of kids in my office, and sometimes it means changing classroom environments, sometimes it means changing household environments. But you have to be flexible towards a child's needs if we want the child to be flexible towards us. Right, um, and just a couple of other things I wanna cover here before our time runs out. So what about parents that say, Hey, what's what's wrong with me teaching my child skills? What's wrong with us doing worksheets? What's wrong with us doing some more kind of academic stuff? Um, if I also do these interactions, um, and I imagine, and, oh, and let me throw in as well, what's wrong with my child watching their favorite show after dinner? Because we hear iPads are so bad. Um, does it have to be floor time all the time? Right. So, so no, it doesn't. But again, you're going to get what you put in. I mean, if you, if you want a child, and again, I'll, I'll go back to some research that I've recently been, been very fond of, which was done at the University of Princeton, identifying what children need in the first three or four years of life to be truly successful, adaptable learners later in life and ultimately successful adults. 
And the most important things that they determined from their study in the Child Study Center were that children need an interest in people and they need to be able to create and understand patterns around them. And they found the most beneficial ways of doing that are engaging in socially interactive play. And they found that children who engaged in more of it were more flexible and adaptable and better learners later in life. So again, we now have the research, right, that supports these theories. We now have the evidence that we need to know what helps a child become a long-term successful learner and adaptable. And I'm not saying that everybody can, it's even possible to spend every second of every day. But the question is, what do we prioritize, right? I have so many families I've worked with who they say they want to do floor time, they say why they want to do an academic program, they say they want to do all of these things, and then nothing really gets done well, right? You can't prioritize 10 things. Mm -hmm. You can prioritize one or two. And so every family needs to make that decision for themselves. What are we going to prioritize? What are our main goals? What's our number one goal, our number two goal, and number three goal? And we need to make sure access to those, uh, those experiences are being driven by our priorities. So if our goal is to have a child have a really good memory and learn to sit down, then spend your time doing that if that's what you want. Now, I don't personally believe in that because I don't think that leads to long-term success, nor does the research. But it's not my family to make that decision. Now, I will say that I support my father's work and all the research that's coming out now to support it that says that children who are more adaptable socially, who have better play schemas early in life because they have more opportunities for social interactions, whether it's early in life or even develop later in life, develop at, at more, in more flexible and adaptable ways as adults and have higher levels of emotional intelligence. So it's those things that I like to prioritize because I tend to follow after my father and try to be a big picture thinker. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's kind of the bottom line. And I tell parents, you know, you're, you're going to get what you put in. And, you know, if you focus on one thing, that's what you'll get out of it. So for parents that have a very tight schedule, so they're working all day, you're picking your children up, you barely have time to do dinner and it's almost bedtime, the best thing to do would be to try and schedule in, um, you know, like, like you say, the 20-minute floor time sessions where you really focus on the child? Absolutely. But and also, I mean, if that is, listen, I work with a lot of single-parent households. I work with some two-parent households who are very busy and they're both working. Um, I've worked with all types of families. And the reality is, is this stuff needs to happen somewhere. Right, whether it's at school, whether it's at home, whether it's with family, or whether it's with other people supporting the family, it these things need to happen. Right, that's I mean that's at least my view. They, we have to find a way. So if mom and dad are very busy and they're they're only able to do that twenty minutes inconsistently, even sometimes because of life, which I get, and I work with plenty of families like that. Then we need to find other ways of getting it. Whether it's finding the neighborhood high school kid who's very playful who can do some of it after school with our child. Whether it's you know, finding that great therapist who can do some of it, whether it's having a sibling who is capable of doing some of it. I worked with all I worked with a family who lived in Italy, whose the husband was out of the s city four days a week working, and his 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 wife, the child's mother, his older the little boy's older sister, and their speech therapist all were doing floor time, and the dad did as much as he could when he'd come back. And this little boy exceeded expectations because they really had a full community of support. And here's the thing I'll say to that. It was hard for two or three years. It was very hard for them. But guess where the little boy is now? He is in a school without support because they invested their time as a family and they made sacrifices early on, which is, again, not always possible, but it was for them. And they got the returns from it. So I would say, just like anything else, you get what you put in. My father used to really, I mean, if for any families out there who worked with my father directly and got his feedback, he would tell parents to quit their jobs. Wow. <laughs> <Believe it or laughs> not. He, 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 he told a father who worked for the World Bank, don't take the promotion. Your son will not achieve his potential outcome. Well, guess what? The dad didn't, and the son is without a diagnosis right now. Now, I'm not saying that's possible for all kids. But it was possible for some of these families because, you know, they were, they, they were given the opportunity to understand that they have the ability to impact change. And I think that's a great note to end on is that 
it can be very frustrating for parents to not really see those immediate outcomes like you do with certain behavioral programs where you teach a skill, you repeat, you repeat, the child learns a skill, check, check it off on the list. But this is much um, different work where you are working on these communication skills with your child by actually emotionally being connected with them and playing with them and and all of this and and you don't necessarily see results and you don't necessarily know what to look for and for us we're four years in and i've seen my child move up the developmental ladder but it's been very slow but it's been robust and that's i think that's probably the hardest thing for parents is to know um to trust in the process and to know what to look for and to kind of put all the right elements in place because development will happen. You can't really, like like um, Dr. Neufeld, a developmental psychologist here in Canada says, and I'm sure he's not the only one who says this, you can't command a plant to grow. You can only provide the right soil, the right light, the right amount of water, etc. What a wonderful analogy, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, Something else you said is so is just a really important moniker or kind of phrase to remember. Believe in the process. You know, so many things we want immediate reinforcement, immediate validation that we're doing the right thing. And whether it's losing weight, getting healthy, you know, learning a new skill like piano or Fre or a language like French, you know, we want to be able to do it right away. It's part of our nature, right? But very few things that are holistically beneficial to us happen immediately. Right. I mean, if we want to get healthy, it is a process and it's a process of staying healthy, right? Eating well and working out and doing all these things. It is the same process for every child. Something you mentioned earlier about, you know, it, it must be nice to be a, a parent of a child where you can kind of sit back and relax and the child just does their own thing. I've actually never seen that to be fully the case, right? All children need stimulation from their parents. All children need it. Some of them can access it more easily and benefit from it more. But what I find is any parent who takes too far of a step back will be dealing with a difficult situation. So every parent, you know, some parents might find it easier to get involved, but every parent and every child needs some involvement from that parent, you know, and so Certainly children with developmental challenges, we feel need a little more because we're trying to speed the process up. But again, going back to what you said, believing in the process and following through and being as consistent as we can, you know, 80-20 if we can, uh, we really do will see those results. And just as you said, the results are not always specific day to day, but they are robust and comprehensive. Great. Well, I can't thank you enough, Jake, for spending this time with us. I'm sure the parents listening will find it very helpful. And I will put links to get a hold of Jake if you're interested into his website at the Floor Time Center in the full blog post accompanying this podcast. And um, thank you so much, Jake. Yeah, thank you for having me. And uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. And I hope you, uh, you find success in your, in your Greenspan Floor Time pursuits. Take thank, care, everyone. Thank you so much. <laughs>